to our study and we just seen that how the Apostle Paul put Timothy in place to he recognized the need for apostolic presence if there's going to be a breakthrough in this very hot warfare and there's a principle there there's a, an authority which God gives to apostolic ministry which we need to recognize hello and those apostolic ministries need to be surrounded by a grace-filled community for them to function at their full level. So it's a corporate thing, and yet it, at the same time, God has chosen to use certain men and women as sort of, as to spearhead the assault. And you can see how Paul is anxious to see that apostolic ministry remains in the city of Ephesus. And then... That happened when he left in about A.D. 59. And as I've already mentioned, the Apostle John came to Ephesus about A.D. 68. And he remained there for the rest of his life. He, he finally died there somewhere around about A.D. 100. There was a period of 14 years when he was carried off to exile on the Isle of Patmos during the terrible persecution under Emperor Domitian. But apart from that time, he was in Ephesus. So I want you to see here the priority that God is giving to this key city. And there are certain key cities in the United States of America where we need to recognize that there are major strongholds which are holding up the advance of the kingdom. And I would think probably the top of the list is Washington, D.C. Amen? And one of the major... Uh, strongholds in the United States of America um, not in my opinion because it's so obvious is, is that we have to deal with Freemasonry and that's got its tentacles into everything and when that comes down there's going to be a breakthrough I haven't obviously time to tell the story but the, the reason that the Finney revival was so powerful was because just before the Finney revival took place there was a complete collapse of Freemasonry across the United States of America. I don't know if you know that, but if you get, if you, you get me to tell you this in one of the... One of the I'll tell you the story, because I think it's very, very strategic to where we are. And, and, and Finney himself was a seventh-degree Mason. And when he got powerfully converted, he realized the demonic error of what he was in, and he wrote one of the most powerful rebuttals of Freemasonry, which I'm glad to say has just been republished, and if you want more information on Freemasonry, we can give it to you. Because it's part of the warfare that's going on right now. And it's got to be powerfully dealt with. And, and just as a commemoration of the year 2000, they built an enormous new monument to Freemasonry just south of Washington. Is it Alexander? Is that the name of it? Is that the place? They, yeah, and, and they've spent millions and millions of dollars building this edifice here, which is part of Satan trying to assert his stronghold here. So we've got to become wise about particular strongholds we need to deal with. In the South America, in the southern part of Texas, I meant to say, here, and in the southern part of America, we've got different um, strongholds. And uh, you know, the Lady of Guadalupe is a good example of what I'm talking about. In certain locations of great spiritual strength, they're the, if you like, they're the geographical gates that we've got to deal with. And there are certain people that will become the personified gates that we have to deal with. But I'm not praying for them to go to hell. I want them to be 
as powerfully converted as the Apostle Paul was. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's move on then, and we'll get into this. Okay, so the the Ephesian Church of History, I say in verse eleven, at the time that Paul wrote the letter, never became the full manifestation of what he saw in spirit. And in my opinion, there's never yet been a church which lived to the full revelation of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It's a prophetic book waiting to be fulfilled. It's a step-by-step manual of how to take a city. Let's do it in his name, by his power, for his glory. So I don't believe any scripture of God is going to fall to the ground. Amen? It will be fulfilled. Amen? So there's got to rise up churches that are going to do the full deal. And, and I'm inviting you with me to believe God that the city that we represent can become truly Ephesian. Amen? During John's exile on the Isle of Patmos, Jesus, through the Apostle John, Jesus wrote to the church at Ephesus. It's one of the letters of the book of Revelation. It's the first letter because it was the key city. All those seven churches of the book of Revelation were churches that were overseen by the apostolic ministry that flowed out from the city of Ephesus. And of course the Apostle John was key to all that. Amen. Let's move on now and let's just come on to what is the beginning of today. Page 13, day 2. We'll catch up, don't worry. I've said some of it already. So within two or three years, we, uh, we see that there's a powerful breakthrough in AD 57. The first attacks began within two or three years. And we find a guy in Acts chapter 19 called Demetrius. I want to say a little bit about Demetrius. Because he became a gate of hell. He became an instrument of Satan to viciously attack the Church of Jesus Christ. Now his argument actually was an economic one. He was making a fortune by selling silver idols of Diana and he saw that if people gave up worshipping Diana he was going to lose his livelihood. Amen? So his motivation is economic. But he's used by Satan to stir up a great uh, assault against them. And he's using this, this idea, he'll ruin our income. If you read in this um, verse 25, men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Now, would you not say that the mafia would say a similar thing about drugs? We, we, we have our prosperity by this evil trade. So if we start to deal, really deal, with drug addiction and start rescuing multitudes of young people so they don't want drugs anymore, how do you think the Mafia is going to feel about that? Hmm? And they're going to start to come again, because this is already happening in Cali, you know that, and the battle is on in Colombia, and they've moved to some of the drug barons who could not survive the spiritual atmosphere in Cali have moved to Bagotoga, and what's the other one beginning with them? Um, The other city... Hmm? I'm still, I can't hear you saying Medellin. Medellin, I know it's a big city, yeah. And, and the battles are in all those three cities right now. We need to, but you see, I want you to be involved in the world scene because what happens in these 
cities is going to very much affect what flows into the United States of America. I've already mentioned there's a big battle on now in Mexico. And I've every confidence that those demonic principalities, those Demetriuses, if you like, the, the drug barons, who are not going to let the church progress because it's going to affect their income, that we're in the same sort of war. And you know what, what sort of things they do, don't you? But we needn't be too scared of all this because uh, I, I had a privilege to go to, um, uh, to the depths of Siberia not that long ago. I went to this guy um, who is a Ukrainian-Russian who, who was trained in, in uh, Sweden. Then he went to Abakan, a town on the border of the deepest south of Siberia, approaching Mongolia. He went and just started. He was, he was active in the mafia. The tragedy is that when communism fell in Russia, it was the mafia that took over. That's the tragedy. And he was one of these up-and-coming mafia guys, and he got powerfully converted, and then went to Abakan and started a church there, a raw church. This is where the slave labor camps were, where they worked in the coal mines, worked in these steel mills, and, and these are the, like, the descendants of those terrible days under communism. And God's powerfully moved there. He's got a church, when I was there, about 18 months ago, he had a church there of 1,200. But he was training 360 young people who were on fire for Jesus, like I've never hardly met before. And they're going to they're spread out across Russia. They're gonna, 60 of them have come over the border from Mongolia. We're going back into Mongolia. And something incredibly powerful was happening there. And, and uh, he told me this story. He said that uh, uh, he's a man of faith and he's seen financial provision for the work. He, he lives a humble life, but he's not short of money for the kingdom. Hello? And he was driving around. He's part of 30 churches, by the way, in less than 10 years. And he was driving around this whole vast area of Siberia in his, his tatty old Russian Lada car that kept breaking down. He said, God, I need a decent car to fulfill my ministry. And the mafia noticed this guy had now built some very, very beautiful buildings and obviously had money to, you know, to do the work. And they thought, you know, this guy's making money. So they said, we're going to come along, we're going to protect you. But there'll be a fee, you know, usual mafia deal. Well, he knows the mafia, they know him. So these three mafia leaders came to him and said, look, um, we'll need you to give us so much a month now on because we've estimated this is something about your income and we want our cut and then we'll look after you and we'll make sure you're okay. He said, I can't give you God's money. And they said, but you understand our ways. And uh, so they left him with an ultimatum that if he did not agree to this monthly payment, uh, they were coming back in a week's time to, to deal with him. And he said to them, he said, don't you understand, you're not dealing with me, you're dealing with God. He said, I wouldn't talk to God that way if I were you. That's what he said to these guys. And they went off. And within, within two or three days, those, two of those leaders dropped dead. And the whole town knew about it. And the third guy realized this was the judgment of God and he repented. Came to this guy, um, at Ruslan his name is, came to Ruslan and asked him to pray for him that God might forgive him. And he was powerfully converted. But, but here's, the, here's the, the, the delicious bit because this guy... He drove around in a brand, almost brand new um, BMW Series 7, his great big beautiful you know, mafia car, and he gives it to Ruslan. <laughs> so when I met at the airport, I met by, by the mafia car, <laughs> which, which now belongs to the church. And he's driving around 
uh, other car, out, you know, driving around Siberia in this fantastic car. I thought, you know, this is the God I serve. Yeah. Now, some of us may lay our lives down in martyrdom. Some of us will see supernatural deliverance, but we're not backing down because of any threats upon our lives. Amen. That could have gone either way with him. And if you know, there's been precious brethren who have laid their lives down already in, in um, Kali, and in their case, it was, they were going to be glorified by martyrdom. But either way, we're going to win the war. But they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, the power of their testimony, or the word of their testimony, and they love not their own lives to the death. Now that may seem very melodramatic in America, but I tell you, in many parts of the world that I go to, that's the accepted price that you pay. And people expect and are quite uh, accepting that that's the way you live Christianity. And I feel it needs to come. Because if we're going to... Re- you just Can you imagine America free from the curse of drugs? With the drug barons either converted or whatever. I mean, one way or the other, the power of what they are putting across this area is broken. I don't think that's too hard for God. Amen? All right, let's move on then. So then, so we may have to deal with our Demetriuses. And then you find the other attack here in Acts 19, 27 to 41, is what I'm going to call the patriotism. Where they say here that, you know, if we don't get stop these Christians, then whom all Asia and the world worship, then Diana may be despised. So they're full of wrath and say, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Now that may not be so true in America, although in certain cultures, if you don't adopt the cultural style, and if you are going to be a kingdom man, then you can be under fire. Now I've seen... um, a totally Catholic community, you'll pay a tremendous price to come out. In India, to be a Hindu is to be a loyal Indian. If you convert to that foreign religion of the Christians, then you're regarded as being non-patriotic. That's the weapon that's used in many, many Muslim nations. Amen? To be an Iranian is to be a Muslim. And so we've got to make sure that, that, you know, that we don't have or we don't allow a wrong loyalty and we're going to have to recognise that we're going to be attacked simply because we've left our church or we've left our cultural norms. There's a price to be paid. Paul said to Timothy, Timothy, take your share in the suffering that automatically comes with the gospel with power. If you go out powerfully, you're going to be attacked. Amen? And we just need to decide that that's not going to daunt us. Let me move on. Okay, so after, so after stabilising the church from his first attack, Paul purposes in spirit to leave and revisit Macedonia. And we're going to have to conclude that he knew what he was doing, although it seems a not a very strategic time to go. And he leaves about AD 59. He urges Timothy to stay behind to strengthen the church. We've already read in Acts 19, this is page 14 now, that Paul is prophesying ravenous wolves from within. He warns the elders, we've already read that, and then over the next 
30 to 35 years, the church at Ephesus experiences many attacks and it's only just about able to hang on rather than grow and have a more significant impact on the city. Now I'm not saying we're going to go through these same historic lengths of time, but I do want you to understand that there isn't one, what I'm going to call, there's not one moment uh, when a city is suddenly taken. When the principality topples from his throne, that doesn't mean he ceases to exist. It means that he's furious to be off his throne and he's, he's manipulating around, seeing how he can stop that foul, wretched thing as far as he's concerned that's disposed him of his power and that's when the war really begins. And whether it takes one year or 35 years, we stay in the fight. Amen? And I don't expect Boston to be changed overnight, but I don't expect it to be changed. I have a feeling at the end of the age, because we've got a lot more understanding than they did, because they were just stumbling their way into that where no one had ever been before. It's like we felt in Bombay way back in the 60s. There weren't any books on spiritual warfare. No one understood this realm, but we just stumbled through trying to hear the Spirit of God and doing what he said, and we saw the breakthrough. But the city of Bombay is still not taken, although it is vastly different to when we went there 30 years ago. Then there were no effective churches, now there were 3,000 of them, at least. And they're, they're militantly evangelistic, and I know the day is coming when India will bow the knee to Jesus Christ. I know that will happen, and I know that's why the war is so fierce at the moment. Every day I get emails from precious brothers in India where brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so has literally laid her life down for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, at the moment, they're paying the price. And the reason they're suddenly being attacked so fiercely by the Hindus is because of the, of the success that they're having. Hinduism has never felt so threatened as it does now because the church has never been so powerful as it is now. And I know some precious brothers, and I hope maybe you'll get to meet some of these one day. There's a guy called P.G. Verdigis. I've known him since he was a sergeant in the Indian Army. He got saved while he was on the front between you know, uh, Pakistan and India. He got saved there in a little church in Udumpur, and I was able to you know, father him from his earliest days. He's now leading an evangelistic ministry where he's got 1,400 full-time workers under his leadership. And they're out all across the north of India um, evangelizing in the toughest of situations. And, uh, as they, and I've been privileged to go and, and teach from the day when it was just him and a few guys to, 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 to today when it's, it's hundreds of, of these fantastic leaders. And I go and teach there and I feel, you know, I just almost want to wash their feet because they, they just go out every day. All they want is a bicycle, um, a loud hailer and a copy of the Jesus film that's all, and, and a projector to show it and they'll go and they'll risk their lives every day to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and they get beaten up and they'll just wait until the bruises heal and they go out again and do it again and I, I tell you I admire these guys phenomenally and that's like a, that's like a battling ram that's going to bring the whole dark demonic edifice of Hinduism down and Jesus is going to be proclaimed across that whole great continent. Amen? But it's not happening in five minutes. Okay. Right, now I want to spend just a few moments now um, just, we won't have time to do this in detail, but just hear me when I say that the two letters of Paul to Timothy were written to Timothy 
while he was doing his best to be the apostolic ministry in the city of Ephesus. So the instructions that he's giving here are to a guy that's got responsibility for a church that started off with a tremendous powerful impact and is now at the height of spiritual warfare. That could be you, that could be right where you are today. And I'm just going to list these things, you'll find them on the next couple of pages. I haven't got time to develop them, but I've summarised them for you. And you'll find that, if we go now to First Timothy, please. Let's just look at that, and then after lunch, we will actually get into the letter of the Ephesians itself. That's where we're heading, okay? But we're just going to look at this first. And first of all is the need to deal with all kinds of false doctrine. Strange doctrines, Gnosticism, and I, and I tell you, Gnosticism is alive and well in our churches right now. Where you, you, you go for special knowledge, and uh, there's all kinds of strange allegorical teachings which have got no biblical foundation. I'm not going to develop it, I've not time, but you, I think you might like to ponder and say, Lord, how can the letter to, T- to Timothy help me to deal with what's going on in my church? It talks about myths and endless genealogies. Now, you see, in every truth, there's a danger of error. Like, let's take spiritual mapping, for example. A very valid and powerful tool, providing it's used the right way. But if it becomes an obsession where you think all we've got to do is to go back over the last 300 years of history of our town or our area and, and deal with every incident, you'll be forever reading history, forever dealing with things. And, but you, what you've got to wait for is for the Spirit of God to show you certain things. Certain things are significant, and they need to be powerfully dealt with. Other things are not significant. And if you simply become a historian that prays over everything, then you've been subtly diverted off track. So you can't do any of these things without the constant spirit of revelation showing you what's the truth. That's why we're told that we have an anointing that teaches us all things. So to be in tune with the Holy Spirit and to be all the time solidly embedded in Scripture are, are the two safeguards that keep us on track. And I've watched, so, and I'm sure you have, I've watched so many loopy people go off into error in all kinds of directions. Amen? And so we've got to stay on track. And the same is true of tracing back the history of a nation or, and you go back or with a person, you're ministering to them and you discover that their great, 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 great grandfather was a Freemason or something. And you say, well, that's it. Well, that may be it, it may not be it. You can spend all your time blaming your hereditary past or your, your genealogy when there are threads and there are things that we need to deal with, but, but there's a power in the cross that cuts you off as well. So we've got to keep the balance of these two things. So, does that make sense to you? Because everybody's always looking, 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 looking back into the history of people as if that's the key. Usually, the key is to believe the Word of God and apply it by faith. That's the most powerful, that's the most powerful weapon that you can use, even against your hereditary past. Amen? So we need to look at these things. 
And we get all kinds of weird teaching and you'll find what you've got to watch is people coming into your church passing around tapes of a certain ministry and then taking people off to conferences and getting them infected with a doctrine which is right across uh, where you want to take the church. And if it's at all shaky or erroneous, you're going to have to deal with it. That's just part of being a good shepherd. Amen? Alright, next thing. Wild, well we've already covered that, wild unbiblical teaching, fruitless discussions, misusing the law, etc. And all these things are there. The next thing I will touch on is promiscuously dressed women and teachers. Now you may think, what on earth, how on earth did you get that from? Come to 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 15. Because I think this is the, this is the issue here. It talks about, in verse 9, with women adorning themselves in modest apparel. Now you've got to understand the context in which this is being written. Because if you look at the, the way people dressed at that time, in these great cosmopolitan cities like Ephesus and like Corinth, it was pretty seductive. And women used their physical charms. And particularly in Gnosticism, uh, there were a lot of women teachers who, who taught the word with background music and with uh, gyrations of their bodies which, which made it much more delicious to men who were filled with lust to come and listen to them. Now that, these, are the, these are the historic facts, okay. See, I, and this is what I believe Paul is hitting at when he says, you know, he talks about you know, the way women teach. He's not saying women teach, but they shouldn't teach in such a way that. And the word usurp there is, is only used once in the New Testament, and it's not used in Greek classics hardly at all because it was a, it wasn't a nice word. It was a rude, vulgar word. And I'm trying. I don't know if I can think of an equivalent today. But if you can imagine Madonna getting converted and using that same power that she did to sway the crowds for Satan, now using it to sway the crowds of Jesus. I'll get them safe for you, but she uses the same technique, wears the same clothes. <laughs> now, that's the sort of picture. That, this is what Timothy was dealing with. That's why the modest dress and the way that she teaches, all this stuff comes in here. I mean, we could spend a week on this alone, but I just want you to get the feel here as to why these things are where they are. And when you, you see, if you're going to come to a correct interpretation of Scripture, you've got to ask yourself certain questions. You know, who, why was that person moved by the Holy Spirit to say that particular thing at that time? And the cultural and historic setting helps you to enormously understand what was said and why it was said. Then what you discover then is the principle. Now the principle is, is, is eternal, but if you like, the, the cultural problem is negotiable. You take women and head coverings, another example of this. I could teach you on that. In fact, there are some texts on these things. You know, because, uh, they say, well, why did, why did Paul say that then at that time to women? Well, if you, if you go into the culture, and if you come from an Eastern culture like I've been privileged to do, you understand these things. And you realise what he was saying. And what he, and what he actually says, which is, which is crucial, is in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 11, he says, what he literally says in the Greek, which has been distorted by the translators because they want to make it fit their doctrine. 
And they say, a woman ought to have a sign of authority upon her head, which is not in the Greek at all. What it says in the Greek is, a woman should have authority over her head. The subject of the sentence is, has the power to exercise authority over the object. So the woman has authority over her head. Whereas men do not have, because when Jesus saved us, I'll just go into this very quickly, just to give an illustration of the kind of doctrines you're going to have to deal with. And you've got to dig in to find out what's really being said here. Because um, if you walk the streets in Corinth with your head loosed, your head hair flowing, you were basically advertising yourself as a prostitute. And it was, a, it was one of the strongest come-on signs. When I was a young man, when I was a teenager, in England anyway, uh, a woman wore a gold chain round her right ankle. That told us that she was a loose woman who was looking for uh, a man. It was a, it was a sign. Now, these days, it's just a bit of decoration, but it still makes me shudder when I see it because of, of my youth, because that meant she's a prostitute. And you couldn't conceive of a nice Christian girl wearing a chain around her ankle. Now, culturally, things have changed now. It doesn't say that in America in the year 2000. So there's no need for her not to do it. Can you hear what I'm saying? But in, in 1945 to 50 in Britain, it said, I'm a prostitute, how about it? That's what it said. And when a woman walked around with her head loosed, that's what it said. So she always covered her head and, and kept it hidden apart from the man to whom she was married. Now, the only created being in all of creation, including the highest angels, that can stand before God uncovered is redeemed man. Isn't that fantastic? Even the cherubim and seraphim and the great angels, they cover themselves, it says that. And they cry, holy, 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 but, but redeemed man, who is, is, like, is the darling of God's heart, he stands before the Father uncovered. That's what redemption has done for us. And you know, when that dawns on you, you think, how incredible, with unveiled face, because the veil was a covering for the hair, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we're changed into that same image one degree of glory to another. Now, so for a man to cover his head, as the Jews used to, as the Corinthians used to, the, the worshippers of, of uh, the Greek deities and the Romans, it was all part of their culture to humble themselves before deity by covering themselves with a shawl and think, I'm a miserable, unworthy sinner, but by this covering, oh Lord, somehow give me protection from your wrath. And so they crawled into God's presence like worms, and the Jews, of course, had the talith, you know, that covering over their head. So when you wore a covering, you were saying, I'm an unfit unworthy worm that hopes that you will spare me from your wrath. Now, if you go into God's presence like that, you're insulting his saviourhood. Amen? Amen? So, Paul says, you men, don't you wear a head covering? Because you're insulting the saviourhood. You're saying, I'm not worthy to come into your presence when the blood of the cross says you are. But for a woman, she had a complication because for a woman, she had the right before God and, and she was equally like, filled with the right to be uncovered because of her so great salvation. But the trouble was, society would not necessarily understand her freedom. So if she walked out the house uncovered, 
They would say, oh, there goes the prostitute. So she would insult her husband and she would insult the saviour that saved her. She might as well be shorn like a prostitute because she's saying, I'm a prostitute. So obviously she's got to be given the right to decide about her head according to her cultural circumstances. Does that make sense to you? And so in the Indian villages, even to this day, it's the same. If a woman walks through, and, and I, I was in India with some of the, some of the guys, and they're right in that, that Indian village, this woman walks down the street with her hair all loose, and a, you know, even with a salary, you can make it very sexy. I won't go into the details, but you can. And she was walking down the street with, you know, and, and, and I said to her, look, see, there goes the village prostitute. And, and they, I taught them, and they said, yeah, now we know what you're talking about. So how could a, a, a humble and, and godly woman of God walk down the street looking like a prostitute just because she's got freedom before Christ? She's got to think about her husband, she's got to think about the name of Jesus, and she's got to not send the wrong signals into the culture. So where the culture does not say to be uncovered is to be a prostitute, you don't need to cover your head, ladies. But you have the freedom. Now, that suddenly made glorious sense to me and, and, and every one of these knotty tangles in scripture about women and what they may or may not do, there are similar answers to it if you dig down deep enough to find out what, what Paul's really saying. That's all I'm saying right now. And so part of Timothy's role was to get these recently saved women out of Gnosticism, out of prostitution, and if you start gathering the world into your church, you're going to have to bring in a few regulations about dress. Because they haven't got a clue anymore what's proper and what isn't proper. And that applies to the men as well as the women. I mean, I always feel wriggling uncomfortable when some guy comes into church lounging like this with, a, with his baseball cap on. I want to say, take it off. <laughs> Amen? Because that's wrong. And I feel we've got to bring, and when you've got some girl who's got a beautiful voice in the worship team and she's got a skirt about four inches say ten inches above her knees and she's singing to Jesus I think that's not the way that our worship team should appear we don't have that sort of freedom Amen so the apostle Paul was telling the apostle Timothy you set things in order in all these respects and we mustn't be afraid to do that because it's protection because all kinds of confusing spirits are coming in through the door and then the final thing in Timothy is the people that wanted to live off the church and not work, which is, I'm sure you're familiar with that. <coughs> to be a full-time ministry for some people is means that I don't have to work anymore. In fact, when my youngest son went to school, he'd come back from India, we'd gone to school in England, and the, the children were being asked to tell the teacher what their daddies did. He said, oh, my dad doesn't work, he's a pastor. <laughs> Amen Alright, let's, let's move on Then the other thing here is in chapter 6 of Timothy which I'm not going to spend time on I'm just going to note his erroneous prosperity teaching It says in verse 1 Timothy 6 verse 9 But those who desire to be rich It says in verse 6, with godliness, with contentment is great gain. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. 
Verse 10, for the love of money is what? The root of all evil. Not money, it's the love of money, which is the root of all evil. And some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Well, again, I'm not here to teach on prosperity, but there's some excellent sets of tapes. I feel I've had real revelation on this. I believe that we should have sufficiency for ourselves, but well, I'm looking to God for abundance for the work of God. And what I'm looking for in America are rich men who've entered the kingdom. It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom. He may get saved, and even if he tithes and gives offerings, um, that's not enough if he's a rich man. Because just as I've been given gifts for the ministry, um, other men have, have given gifts which are equipping them to make a lot of money, but the purpose is for the kingdom. And I haven't met, I've met possibly one man in America that's got this message clear. Jesus says it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom because what it means is that all your financial resources now come under the direct rule and government of God. He may tell you to live on 2% and give 98% away and yet still have the same enthusiasm to make money, but it's for the kingdom. Twice Paul urges his people to work for the purposes of having enough to give. That's the only reason he says, you work real hard so you've got plenty to give away. That's what he said. And I don't know anybody that I've met who said, look, I took a second job because I didn't think I had enough money to give for the purposes of the kingdom. I took a second job. You might do it for a bigger house or a better car or to get your children through college, but I tell you, to just do it for the kingdom, I've met very few people like that. When that day comes, we're going to have the resources to get the job done. I've met someone in Zimbabwe He's under some difficulty right now because of the situation in Zimbabwe. He's one of the marked men that Mugabe is out to get. I won't mention his name, I won't say any more, but he, several years ago, was a, a, an entrepreneurial businessman, powerfully born again, but he found every time he tried to develop his business, communication between the rest of the world was difficult because of the antiquated government phone system. So he tried to bring in modern telephonic communication systems. He was absolutely banned by the government because they didn't want any competition to these is antiquated, worn-out, inefficient government phone system. So in the end, the Spirit of God told him to fight it in the courts. To take the government on in the courts is a pretty dangerous thing to do in Zimbabwe. Anyway, he did. He was several times arrested, several times threatened, beaten up, because uh, they said, you, you withdraw this case. Because legally, according to the law of the land, he had a case. But the political forces were not going to let him win his case. Anyway, God gave him grace, and he went to court and finally he won the final court and got the freedom now to import uh, modern telephone communications. He was the first one to bring cell phones into his nation. He was the first one to bring internet sites into his nation. He, he's made multi-millions of dollars. And now he's got franchises into many other African nations. At the moment he's having to be in hiding because Mugabe's out to get him. But his business mushrooms and it was two years ago he told me then that he had that year he'd made a profit of 20 million US dollars he put 17 million of them directly into the church this is, this is a, a Zimbabwean African and then the rest of his money he's used it strategically for the kingdom and he'll meet you in a very ordinary restaurant wearing very ordinary clothes. He'll drive a very ordinary Toyota Camry that's about five or six years old and you'll never know that he's the man that he is because he's not living as a rich man 
except for the purposes of the kingdom. He's entered the kingdom. And I thought, dear God, if we had a hundred men like that in America, just think what we could do for the world. I've had him come to several other African nations and, and take seminars for businessmen on how to become a kingdom businessman. And several, and I know businesses all over African nations are now shooting out into power and prosperity because of his teaching. Amen? So Timothy had to deal with a false prosperity message. And we've got to do the same in this nation without losing the true prosperity message. Amen? All these things are necessary. Let's just move on. Then, let me just mention this and I won't go any longer. He then calls Timothy to be an example. And then he, I mentioned some things. They're all there in the letters to Timothy. You can find them. He's to, he's to be in holiness and purity of life. He's to flee what's harmful and pursue what's profitable. You come to 1 Timothy 6 and verse 11, for example. He's just dealt with this false prosperity thing and then in verse 11 he says, but you, O man of God, flee these things. And I want you to agree with me that the ministry that you have responsibility for will never be known for any kind of financial greed. That we won't rip off the people, although we'll encourage them and we'll teach them for them, for their sake, to get into God's glorious prosperity lifestyle. We're not, we're not here to rip them off. And we want all our finances to be done with the highest level of integrity. But you are a man, you flee these things. And, you, and that flee is a pretty powerful word. And when you're facing a few financial crises, it's, that's the time you hold course. And you don't write the begging letter. And you don't try and manipulate a few people. It's the easiest thing in the world to do. I, I, my invitations, I don't say, well, if I go there, they'll give me a $5,000 on an AM. If I go there, they'll give me a $300 AM. God knows I never do that. I say, God, where do you want me to go? And I honestly, before God, and God knows I'm telling I pray, and I'll go where he tells me to go, whether it costs me money, or whether it's one of those places where he allows me to receive something to help you know, continue the ministry. And... Uh, and I tell you, sometimes I've been sorely tempted. It's not easy to stay on track on these things. Here you are facing all kinds of financial pressures and this brother says, come to our conference. And uh, Well, I know that conference. You know, you know, that could be just what I need, $6,000 or whatever. That's just what I need right now. But you say, well, I'm sorry, brother, I've got to you know, go to so-and-so. Now, in the long run, you don't lose out on these things. But it takes a lot of financial integrity and it takes a lot of courage to stay on track with these things. And if we're going to be city-taking people, we're going to have to live this way. Then, verse 12, fight the good fight of faith, which I'm not going to go into. So he fleed what was harmful. Now come back to verse 11. This is what he had to pursue. Pursue what? The front page of charisma? Going to the right conferences to meet the right people to get your name known? Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience. Patience is that, is that beautiful word, hupomone, which means long-term cheerful endurance and gentleness. They're the things to pursue. He was, it says he was to rebuke, 
and he was to exhort and he was to be particularly careful how he handled older men and women. That's in, this, in there, you can find them. Most of all, he was to be an example to the believers. Come to, um, come to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. Till I come, give attention to reading. Listen to this. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine, don't neglect the gift that's in you which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourselves entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. As a leader, you've got to be seen to be making progress. Even at my... I want people to see the same Alan Vincent at the end of 2001 that they met at the beginning of 2001. I'm all, always on the stretch for a new thing. New revelation and new encounters with the living God. Take heed to yourself, verse 16, and to the doctrine. Notice if you go through 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy how many times the word doctrine comes. It comes again and again and again and again. You've got to lay a sound word foundation for it. Continue in them for both in the doing in doing this, you will both save yourself and those who hear you. If you don't make progress, you stop the church from making progress. If you make progress, you, you as it were, you drag them along in the wake of where you're going. Amen? Alright, so that's how he wrote to Timothy. And, and one more thing. Most of all, he was to be an example to believers. And then at the end, bottom of page 15... He was to deal completely with fear. That's of course in 2 Timothy chapter 1 where he's told not to fear and then in, it's in connection with verse 8 Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord nor of me his prisoner but share with me in the suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. If you start shaking cities you're going to be attacked. And you can see Timothy looking at Paul saying, I'm not sure if I really want to follow you. Because <laughs> you're in jail. And uh, you've suffered a lot. And uh, maybe I could find something a little more comfortable. But that won't take cities. Amen? Okay. Through warring faith he was to grasp the things prophesied over him. That comes several times in Timothy. Prophecies have come... A good example would be back in First um, Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. I'll just give you one example of that. And it comes several times in the Timothy letters. It says, I charge you, and that word charge is a very strong word. Basically, I command you, like a military officer, I command you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made, concerning you that by them you may wage the good warfare. Prophecy is, is weaponry for warfare. Amen? And so, finally we come to Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And, and I'm just looking now at page 16. He writes so as to establish principles by which they may fight effectively and win the battle that's raging all around them. This is to complete 
this is the complete manual I've got here for city taking. If we do all this in the progression that we that it's there, then there's no doubt we're going to take cities. There's no doubt they would have taken cities. Now Paul writes this letter about AD 64. He's been in jail for something like four years when he writes it. It's probably written from Rome, I already said, after about four years in jail. And as we've already said, the church has been under fire for several years. It's now making little progress after a glorious start because a major principality, which we now know is the great goddess Diana or Artemis, it's stubbornly resisting any advance of the kingdom. And so now we're going to begin this afternoon after lunch to go over this. Amen? So we've got a little time and that's a very quick skim through. I couldn't do any more detail. But uh, uh, I hope it's made you think and you've written some notes about things you're going to have to read about and put into practice. I mean, because that's what this is all about. So we've got a few minutes for a question.